My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. A lawyer in Sydney, Australia tells a story of how one day an elderly couple came to see him. <clears throat> he was 86 and she was 83. And the lawyer asked them, what can I do for you? And they said, we want to get a divorce. And why do you want to get a divorce? Because we don't love each other anymore. And how long have you been married? 40 years. So the lawyer tried to quickly recall all the points from the meditation he heard about charity and perseverance and fidelity on his last retreat and give them a, an impromptu talk. Charity is patient, charity is kind. It's beginning again. It's loving other people with their defects. It's letting the waters pass under the bridge. It's not making a mountain out of a molehill etc. and ask them to go away and think about it for a while and come back some other day and they would talk a little more. And so the couple went away and three years later the wife came back and she said I've just come back to tell you that my husband just passed away but I want to thank you because we've just had three of the most wonderful years of our whole life. The moral of the story is that we're always beginning again in love. Love is a mystery. God is love. And in the course of our life, we try to learn a little more of that mystery of love. Perseverance and fidelity in marriage, very much based on love and keeping that love alive, of taking care of that love. And we have the grace from the sacrament to help that to happen. St. Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you. He also says, and let us never slacken in doing good. For if we do not give up, we shall have a harvest in due time. And so we have to keep trying to persevere in doing good, working at our marriage, beginning again, keeping our love young and fresh, after many years, like it was before we got married. St. Jose Maria liked to give great importance to details. Love is in the details. Perfection is in the details. It's remembering little things. It's sweeping the other party off their feet from time to time with little gestures of love and affection. There is a song by Julio Iglesias in Spain many years ago. It's the lament of a man whose loved one has left him. The title of the song is Me Olvide de Vivir las Detalles Pequeñas. I forgot to take care of the small details. And often those small details can cost us a little bit. Our Lord said, if anyone wants to be a follower of mine, let him renounce himself and take up his cross every day and follow me. That's quite a program for marriage, to renounce ourselves, 
forget about ourselves and take up the cross that God has planned for us. That's the marriage vocation. We have a vocation that comes with our baptism, vocation to holiness. And then there's a specification of that vocation over the years and in the course of our life. And one of the specifications of that vocation well, is our vocation to marriage, to this particular person, at this particular time in history, in this particular place, with these particular difficulties of finance, of health, of employment. St. Paul says we've been chosen out before the foundation of the world. We have been chosen out before the foundation of the world. Every aspect of our life has been chosen by God. Nothing is an accident. And God wants us to work then at making our marriage a success and making our family life a success so that the domestic church can really be everything that it's supposed to be. A pathway to holiness, a seedbed of vocations. And that means each spouse has to try and live like a great human person. A great human person that gives example to children of what being a great human person means, which ultimately means virtue, living the virtues in a concrete way. And by doing so, we reveal gold, spiritual gold, to the other members of our family, to our spouse, to our neighbors, to our friends. But gold nuggets don't sit on top of the soil. One needs to dig. And often one has to dig with patience, with constancy, with effort. One has to begin and begin again with a new hope, with a new perseverance. And so perseverance in marriage is a gift of God. It's a grace that we have to ask for, pray for it, ask for it. It's the fruit of faith, of hope, of love. Our perseverance and our marriage vocation makes many things possible. It's a commitment of love. We're committed. It's not something that's superficial. We're not a, a fly-by-night when it comes to this particular reality. We've given our word. And love seeks to be definitive. And so God will always give us the power to go on. Even if we feel we don't have any more energy, our willpower, our desire. To love is to do things God's way. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And in Christ, we find the meaning and the purpose of our life. And very particularly in Christ on the cross, we find the meaning and the purpose of our life. We draw close to the sacred humanity of Christ and to his wounds to draw water in joy from the wells of salvation. If we trust in him, we will not be disappointed.
will derive our strength from Christ for the battles that we need. And so if we trust in him, we will not be disappointed. We can leave the past to God's mercy, the future to God's providence, and live the sacrament of this moment. It's a gift. A sacrament is something that has a visible and an invisible part. We're living out the sacrament of this moment, what we see, what we feel, what we hear. But there's an invisible part. God lives in an eternal now. And we know that he has a gold medal prepared for us. It does not corrode. There is merit in struggle. And God wants us to get that merit. And so love is a decision. I will love you into heaven. And we know that in the battles and the challenges and the journeys of every day, the winds may blow. But if the house is founded on rock, not just the rock of doctrine, but the rock of family life, of apostolate, of Our Lady, well, the building will not fall. But for this, well, we need to struggle. We need to sacrifice ourselves. Sacrifice needs to be always present in our daily life. Sometimes perseverance needs sacrifice. If you look at any of the long distance runners, Kenyan runners that win the marathons all over the world, there's tremendous sacrifice there, there's tremendous perseverance. And so we've got to be careful with that perseverance. To put our perseverance in danger could be a serious sin of infidelity to God and to this wonderful commitment of love that God wants us to live out. At the bottom of all infidelity, there is a pocket of corruption, something that wasn't right from the start, something that needs to be clarified. That's one of the reasons why we have to be very careful about our formation, our marriage formation, our spiritual formation, our doctrinal formation. Church places an awful lot of importance on formation. Often in parishes, there's a pre-marriage course or pre-marriage formation. But of course, the whole of our marriage isn't just prepared for in one short seminar on a quick weekend. We start preparing for our marriage in primary school, in our own families in what we see in the lives of our parents and how we build family life at home. And we work at that marriage preparation through high school, possibly through third level education. A lot of it involves the formation in virtue. But humans are fickle minded. All the apostles said yes to Christ, but one changed his mind. The passing things of this world can never be the source of our happiness. And so we have to be a little bit careful with football, our fashion, or the movies, our professional success. 
Our happiness has to come from much deeper things. We find our happiness in the risen Lord. And just like our marriage life may not be a, a romance all the time, there might be periods of dryness or no ideas or no affections. Well, our spiritual life might be the same. But we've got to work at it, go back and begin again. The goal of, of our fidelity is not just for 50 years time, but in this moment. It cannot just depend on our mood, on our health, on our hormones, on our family situation. Fidelity is something dynamic. It's not static. It finds expression every day. Mother Teresa was once asked if she really thought that all the things she were doing could make an impact in the poverty of India, would she be able to solve all the problems of India, the problems of poverty? And her answer was very quick. I'm not called to be successful. I'm just called to be faithful. There's a lot of wisdom for that in every Christian vocation in the world. I may not be very successful in building my family, in building my marriage, in earning money, in my profession, in various areas, but I am called to be faithful. And to try to do so with a sense of humor and, and perspective, so that I never give up on the ideal of marriage and married love. Yes, the solutions to the problems of marriage and the family in the world today don't come from the Catholic Church. They're not going to come from anywhere. Because we have the truth. We have the answers. It's all there in the documents of the church, spiritual treasures. We have to try and know very well the ideal of marriage and married love. Understand what love is. Human love is one of the most beautiful realities on the planet. It's a reflection of divine love. That's why the devil has gone to so much trouble to mess it up for young people. Our marriage vocation is a vocation to witness to the truth of authentic love. The truth, the beauty and the meaning of conjugal love. And that's why fidelity in marriage <clears throat> is always moving and inspiring. Fidelity is to fall in love with God, to grow in this day by day, and to foster this around us. To focus on one thing, not many. Our Lord said to Martha, only one thing is necessary. And so it's not difficult to persevere in marriage. The vast majority of people persevere. At the same time, fidelity doesn't come with age. Often older people don't persevere. And if ever that's the case, well, it's because there's been a focal point of corruption earlier. People did not want to keep struggling. They were not in love enough with their marriage vocation. 
virtues are manifestations of love. When love disappears, all the virtues disappear. And a lot of human things, human talents, abilities, intelligence, big degrees, prestige, well-paying jobs, apostolic successes, these don't necessarily make us faithful and persevering. We've got to work at it. Out of commitment to the ideals of the beginning. We would be crazy to worry about whether or not I'm going to persevere in my marriage. We just have to try and live today, try and persevere today, to trust, to hope, to identify ourselves with Christ. And to renew our generosity all the time. Generosity is a very beautiful virtue. Authentic love leads us to be generous. We could ask our Lord, Lord, give me the heart with which you want me to love you in and through my marriage and my family. So that I can sing a new song unto the Lord. And the sureness of divine love that is with us is shown in cheerfulness. Lord, may others see God in me. Sometimes in my defects, but in the defects in which I struggle. And so our first loyalty is to God through our vocation to live out today the duties of my state that God has placed in front of me and to fight to place myself at the service of my spouse, of my family, because that's what it's all about. All our formation, all our education has the goal of service because Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. And so often our beginning again in marriage it's a question of beginning again in our service. How can I serve better? What is wanted of me? What can I contribute in this particular moment or situation? Drucker in the effective executive asked the question, what makes people effective? He says, it's, the ask the, it's because they ask themselves the right question. They don't just do good things or ask themselves good questions. They do the right thing because they ask themselves the right question. And the right question is, what can I contribute? What can I give? And if we can contribute something or give something in this situation, in this family gathering, in this family, even though my family members might be on the other side of the world, if I can contribute something that nobody else can contribute, well, that makes me effective. If our children are relatively grown up, well, maybe our greatest effectiveness is through prayer and being faithful to our spiritual life and giving that example of virtue, of fidelity, of perseverance. An attitude to foster can be loyalty even on a human level, to be loyal to people, to be true to our word, let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
Fidelity is not staying out of other beds, it's loving the bed that we're in. With all of its characteristics. For fidelity, we need a, an inner toughness to dominate the ego. So that we're not ruled by likes and dislike, dislikes. Sometimes we need to burn our bridges to give ourselves, to conquer our addictions, because we're all addicted to something. Our laziness, our selfishness, our football, our fashions, our food, our drink. There was a story of a man in Mexico many years ago who with his wife used to go to the bullfights every Saturday afternoon. So for 25 years, without fail, they went to the bullfights every Saturday afternoon until one day the wife said, let's not go to the bullfights. I'm fed up going to the bullfights. And the husband said, okay, let's not go to the bullfights. I never really wanted to go to the bullfights anyway. There was a man who knew how to keep his first love in first place. Because with the passage of time, Sometimes our other loves can creep into first and second place. And our first love can get relegated to fifth or sixth place. And so often we need to, to rectify, go back and put more order in things. To recognize that we are vessels of clay. We carry this treasure, says St. Paul, in vessels of clay earthenware vessels, we make mistakes, we put our foot in it, we do the wrong thing. Difficulties to our fidelity can come from our human limitations, our weaknesses, sometimes our tiredness. There can be a lack of love. There could be important external changes coming at a bad moment. Never make long-term decisions or decisions that affect us in the long term in a low moment. Because that low moment can seriously affect the decision we're going to make. There can also be difficulties from temporary blindness. A temporary blindness that can, that can pass. It may blow away by next week. Our Lord says the person who puts their hand to the plough and looks backward is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And so our goal is to keep our hand on the plough and keep looking forward. The devil often wants us to look back and to turn back. If we keep looking back it won't be long before we turn back. We have to try and keep our hand on the plough and keep looking to the future. Because if we start looking back, we can, we can start to put to place conditions on our proposed commitment. When we have committed ourselves to give ourselves completely, unconditional surrender. The Lord help me not to look back. And that Palestinian plough that our Lord was talking about was a difficult plough. 
wasn't easy to direct. The soil in the fields beside the Sea of Galilee was hard soil. And so it was difficult to, to direct and keep your hand on it. And so the plowman has to have a fixed point towards which he directs the plow through difficult ground. If not, he may not be able to open up a straight furrow. At times, the temptation to look back can come from our own limitations or from an environment that's, that's hostile to the obligations we've taken on. Temptation may even be provided by behavior of others who, who should be an example and are anything but. Because of the way they live, well, they seem to tell us that being faithful is not one of the basic values. At other times, temptation could come from a lack of hope. When we see holiness in marriage as just a faraway thing, as remote and objective as ever, in spite of all of our efforts to keep on struggling. And so after the initial enthusiasm, especially in the early years of marriage, well, there could be doubts, hesitations, anxieties that all begin to take effect. If we're forewarned against these things, we can be forearmed. But we've given our word. And when we give our word, in a certain sense, we give ourselves. We put on the line what is most intimate ourselves. And so in spite of our personal failings, a true disciple and follower of Christ will be honest and loyal, a man of their word. Whoever keeps their word is faithful. There may be a lot of people, irrespective of their age, who seem ignorant of the noble obligation of keeping their word fulfill the commitments they once assumed with complete freedom or to behave in accordance with the decisions they made before God or man in civil or religious life. Difficulties may arise, but the faith and the teaching of the church and the example of the saints that have gone before us can show us that it is possible to live these virtues. God does not deny his grace to those who do what they can. And so we must be firmly convinced and help others to have the same conviction that it is possible to live all the virtues with all the demands that they make. There's a certain idea that may be in vogue around the place that virtues and commitments are ideals our goals to aim at, but without much hope of attaining them. Well, we could ask God that we might never fall into that error. A Christian who is loyal will not cave in when upright moral behavior imposes or seems to impose serious difficulties. We can ask God for an upright conscience to be ready to face 
all situations. There was a plane load of travel agents who were going to an island off Argentina many years ago for a weekend to explore some new resorts so they could write about it and promote it. And shortly after takeoff, somebody took the microphone and began talking about how we're going to have the weekend of our lives. We're going to have a great time. And the picture he was painting was not particularly savory. But then there was another man who tried to take care of his family formation and his spiritual life. And he went and he took the microphone after this fellow and said, well, fine, let's have a great time. Let's have a wonderful weekend. But let's just remember also that 20 minutes ago at the airport, we left our wife and our children. Let's not do anything this weekend that might displease them. And so in just a couple of words, he changed the whole tone of the weekend. We have to be that sort of person, creating an atmosphere of fidelity around us, helping people to live in accordance with the commitments that they have make, made. A person who may have a desire in theory to practice a particular virtue, they may not wish to sin, but in practice, when the temptation is great, or when difficulties arise that are serious difficulties, well, they may feel justified in more or less giving in. It can happen in a work situation, or when we're faced with the obligation to react energetically, when sensuality threatens to intervene, or when we need a serious effort to finance our children's education, or to be faithful to our spouse or our vocation. We're told in scripture that the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. But it did not fall because it was founded on rock. Well, we have to try and make sure that our marriage vocation is founded on rock. Mary's vocation was founded on rock. She and Jane Joseph, they faced all sorts of uncertainties, risks, dangers. But yet they listened to what God was saying to them and everything worked out. We could ask Our Lady with that great title, Virgo Fidelis, Virgin Most Faithful, <clears throat> that we might grow our fidelity to this particular marriage vocation that God has given to us. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here and that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. This meditation is about children, a gift of God. There's a phrase in scripture 
It says in, in Latin, Sishires Donum Dei. If you knew the gift of God. And so gifts that come from God are very special. We have to try and appreciate the gift. Possibly seeing it from a supernatural perspective with all of the consequences. There was a fellow in a class I used to teach many years ago in another country. He was a very average fellow, but he did extremely well. He had three sisters, he was an only son. His father was very close to him. He got into an Ivy League university in the States. I'd often heard St. Maria saying we should be very good friends of our children. An easy thing to say, but in my experience, not such an easy thing to achieve. But this man had achieved it very well. And he was a very successful professional businessman. And so I asked him, well, what was his secret? And he said, well, I have given up the cocktail circuit and I try to be home by six in the evening. I spend an hour with my son every day and we, we chit-chat, we're buddy-buddies. Then I asked him, but what gave you that orientation or that motivation to conduct yourself like that? And he said, well, I was working in New York at one stage and I knew a, a Jew on Wall Street who was very successful. And one time he invited me to his home in upstate New York for a weekend. And we got to the house and it took us five minutes to get from the gate to the house. And that's not because the car was breaking down. It was a huge mansion. And then he showed me around this incredible mansion, room by room. And when we got to his own bedroom, there was a big sign above the bed that said, the greatest failure of a man is to fail as a father. And this fellow says, I was a bit perplexed. It was this man who was so successful on Wall Street. And yet hanging over his bed was a, a sign, a message all about failure. And so I asked him to explain. And he said, well, you see, when my kids were growing up, I was on the up and up in Wall Street and I put them into boarding schools and Christmas time came and I was very busy so I just left them there and summer time came and I was also very busy and I just left them there and that went on for a couple of years and now one of them is on drugs and another one is something else and the third one is something else and he, he painted a pretty dismal picture. And this man said, well, I came home to my own home and I made out my own sign and I hung it above my own bed saying that the greatest failure of a man is to fail as a father. Fatherhood is a, and parenthood is a vocation. Something we have to respond to. There's a grace for it. There are graces for the battles of every day in that vocation. Something that we have to live out on a daily basis, maybe on an hourly basis, to take care of that gift, to look at it from a supernatural perspective, which means to look at it from the point of view of faith and of hope and of charity. God has great plans for our marriage, for our parenthood, for our children.
in our correspondence that vocation comes to be something very important. I was living in a university residence in Spain one time and after lunch each day there was supposed to be a get-together for everybody. There were about a hundred male students in the university in the residence but the get-together competed with the siesta and so generally there was a, about a 30% attendance and if there was an invited guest well that attendance might arise to about 50%. And then one time in the year, a lady was invited. All the invited guests were men. At this time, a lady was invited. And suddenly there was 100% attendance. It was the event of the year. Nobody wanted to miss this historic occasion. Now, this lady was a professor of psychology. She was a mother of eight children. She was a member of Opus Dei. And she came into the get-together and she started to talk about what it meant to be a mother. And I was a bit surprised. I was thinking, well, I wonder how she got her topic wrong. These guys are never going to be mothers. But then I looked around the room and all the joys and jaws were hanging open. They were all fascinated. They all knew what a mother was, but it never crossed their mind for a moment to think of what it meant to be a mother. And this lady talked about some very domestic little anecdotes from her home how she and her husband were both academics, they were a bit disordered by nature, one shoe here, the other shoe there, clothes on the back of the chair. And she said, as our children grew, well, we saw how they were imitating our example of disorder. And so our battle in the home was to hang up our clothes properly and to put our two shoes together. And she told some very homey little stories. But then she said that a mother has to be different things to her growing children at different stages of their development. To the two-year-old, she has to be the diaper changer, one of the crucial services that she provides. To the six-year-old, she has to be the mom that gets down on the floor and plays with a doll's house or a toy car or something. To the 10-year-old, she has to be the good-looking mom who puts on a bit of makeup and gets her hair done so that when she comes to collect her 10-year-old son from school, he can dig the other guys in the ribs and say, that's my mum over there, the good-looking one. And to the 16-year-old, she has to be the intellectual mum, who knows what's going on in the world, keeps abreast of current affairs, maybe has a book going, and is able to engage her budding intellectual child in an intellectual conversation. and doesn't give the impression that the last time that an idea went through her head was before she got married. And so this lady painted a picture reminiscent of St. Paul, who says we have to be all things to all men. And just as a mother has to try and be different things to her growing children at different stages of their development, so also a father has to be something similar. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says children are the supreme gift of marriage and contribute greatly to the good of the parents themselves. They contribute greatly. Children are not just a burden or a problem or a challenge. They're our pathway to holiness. And we have a special grace to grow in that 
pathway to holiness. There's a grace there for all the challenges and the difficulties and the ups and downs. God wants us to become good at this business of parenting, good at taking care of this gift or these gifts in the different ways that they express themselves. There was a man in Ireland many years ago. He was very successful, actually, one of the most prominent actuaries in the country, very prestigious profession there. And he began to attend recollections of Opus Day, and little by little, he sort of went, underwent a change. He, he said afterwards, you know, I always thought that the most important thing in my life was my work. He had eight children. And it's through the formation that he received, he said, I began to see that my work is not really the most important thing in my life. The most important thing in my life is my family. The professional man that he was, he decided to make a paradigm shift to start to look at his family with the same seriousness with which he looked at his work. So he installed a filing cabinet in his home, he opened a file in each one of his children. He had weekly board meetings with his wife, planning sessions, quarterly goals, monthly goals, weekly goals for each of the children. He had five to ten minutes reporting sessions with each one of the children. He organized his family along the same lines as he organized his office. Took that whole enterprise very seriously. Pope St. John Paul II, I like to say that the family is the school of deeper humanity. Pope John Paul was full of very pithy, short little phrases that were so instructive. He talked about the civilization of love, the culture of life. The womb is the sanctuary of life. The family is the school of love, school of virtue. School of Piety, School of the Soul. He said the future of humanity passes through the family. We can get a lot of mileage out of thinking that Christ spent 30 years, not 30 days, but 30 years living out a humble presence in the family. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. And his mother kept all these things carefully in her heart. And Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and grace before God and men. And so we have to try and create a family atmosphere in our home, create the home, the tables and the chairs and the Furniture and material things don't really create the tone of the home. They help a little bit, but the tone is created by us, with our self-giving. With the fact that we give importance to family life, we dedicate time to it, and thought, and energy, and prayer. We try to be there. Christ gives great dignity to family life. Part of that creating a family atmosphere is family fun. Our best moments should be at home and with the family. And hopefully our children feel the same way. They enjoy family life. Maybe they don't enjoy their chores or their homework, 
But there's something else there that they enjoy, something deeper. So we have to be, try and be available to our children to play with them, to do their thing, to talk to them, to listen to them, to attend their sports matches, soccer or hockey or basketball, whatever it may be. In a regular way, try to check their homework. Partly because you want to see how they're doing, but also to let them see that you're interested. It's their work. Let them see that you value it. What they spend their time doing and the way they do it. With that, you communicate to them that your work is important to me. In all families, there may be moments of the cross, possibly sickness, or contradictions, or pain, or failure, or the loss of a child, or miscarriages. From your approach to all of these things, your children learn a lot about life. You approach these realities, but with faith. Aware that I'm a child of God, I'm carried in the palm of a hand of a God who loves me. God is speaking to us through the cross, helping us to grow in virtue. And often those situations can be opportunities for heroic Christian witness. You show children what real faith is of what real detachment or poverty is, of what real humility is. Whenever you lose your temper, well, try to apologize. If you lose your temper and you shout and roar, well, the children learn that it's okay to lose my temper and to shout and roar. But if you apologize, they learn that I have to be humble. Dad also makes mistakes and he makes up for it. Try to raise your children to be a good son or daughter-in-law. To raise great men and women who are not just successful materially, but who are successful people of character. Somebody wants to find character as that's what you have left when you've lost everything else. Some people in life lose everything they ever had. But if they're people of character, they can still be strong. Raising children well doesn't mean to raise them to make a lot of money. But rather to be children of whom you're proud throughout their lives. And so God gives us a vocation to be a family man. Family values mean family priorities. I was talking to a man once who was not a philosopher, but he had interest in philosophy. And he realized there was a lot of bad philosophical ideas traveling around the world. And he'd heard of some conference that was taking place in New York, and he was thinking of 
traveling all the way to New York to say something and to communicate certain ideas, to try and correct some of these wrong ideas. In the course of the conversation, he happened to mention how he had a seven-year-old son. And the seven-year-old son liked to play basketball. And the son was always asking him, hey, Dad, why don't you come and play basketball with me for a while? But he was always very busy. I had to tell him, well, look, rather than jumping on a plane and going to New York and talking at this great conference, maybe you do more good in the world by just staying home and playing basketball with your son. Often God doesn't ask us to do extraordinary things. But he does ask us to do the ordinary things extraordinarily well. And that's the apostolate within the family. You have to be there. Be there in the key moments of the lives of your children. Know what's going on in their lives. What are they thinking? That's what being good friends of your children are. That's what it means. Friends are people who let down the drawbridge of their heart. And let other people see what's in their heart. They communicate. And this business of building friendship with your children has to be done before a certain age. 10, 11, 12 are key ages. You have to work on things before that. Because once the child gets into the teenage years, as somebody said once, they enter the stone age. They become monosyllabic. Where are you going out? When will you be back later? If you haven't built the bridges in the years of 9, 10, 11, 12, you won't be able to walk along those bridges later when you need to in the teenage years. Our Lord wants us to be generous cooperators with the plans of God. Very important to pray for your children. Pray for God's plans for them and to pray with them so that they hear you saying the morning offering or your prayer to your guardian angel or your memorarius. You see that piety in the home is a real thing. And if ever your children are receiving any of the sacraments, well, try and make that a big occasion. First communion, confirmation. On my first communion day, my father told me he would allow me to do something today that he would never allow me to do for the rest of my life. And I was really excited to know what this great thing was going to be. He said, I will allow you to sit at my place in the dining room table. And so at breakfast that day, I sat in his place at the dining room table. I felt like a king. But then he kept his promise. Never again. So sometimes there are little things we can do that don't cost any money, but yet which convey an important message about what is important in our life. Children are a gift of God, and that gift in particular is the gift of their soul. We spend an awful lot of time thinking about the bodies of your children, clothes, food, all the material necessities, education. But the spiritual realities are much greater. 
One of the greatest truths of our faith is the immortality of the soul. We don't think enough about the soul. If you think for a moment, when was the last time in a newspaper article, a magazine or a movie, that I heard anybody mentioning the soul? All the great religions of the world believe in the spiritual nature of man. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity. Only modern materialism says that man has no soul. He's just a thing. And yet when God creates a soul and infuses that soul into a body at the moment of conception, that soul is destined to live forever and forever and forever. There was a Protestant theologian once who was musing about the immortality of the soul and he thought that the purpose of the soul is to give God glory in this world and then go to heaven and give God glory forever and forever and forever. And he was thinking, well, if that's the purpose of the soul, well, one of the greatest things that any human person can do in this world is to bring souls into the world, to give God glory forever and forever and forever. And if that's the case, he said, well, contraception must be wrong. So he changed his religion and became a Catholic. Be affectionate with your children because everyone has a heart. And every day that heart needs a bit of affection, a bit of encouragement. Try to be easy to live with. Parenting experts talk about how Parents and fathers should try to live as great men and women. Great men and women don't demand more of their children than they do from themselves. And children imitate people they admire, even unconsciously. Virtue means power. If you're a man of virtue, you'll be a man of power. Leaders don't just have followers, they have joiners. A parent who goes to Mass every day or practices some particular virtue in a special way will leaves a great legacy, great legacy of example to children, an example they can't argue with. Good example attracts. God wants you to be proud, to feel proud and privileged to be a parent, to have that vocation. It's a calling to a great mission. It's a weight, but it's an honor. Pray that your children someday will become masterpieces. It's your pride and honor to see that happen. One parenting expert says that the role of parents is to turn a gorilla into an adult. Because every baby that comes into the world comes into the world like a self-satisfying hedonistic gorilla. I want my milk and I want it now. And I'm going to scream and scream and scream until I get it even if it's three in the morning. You jolly well get up out of bed and give me my milk because I'm the most important person in the world. 
Well, the role of parents is to turn this little gorilla into an adult. And an adult is not somebody who can take care of themselves. Because a hothouse plant or a goat or a cow or a cat or a dog can take care of themselves. An adult is somebody who can take care of others. Someone who can forget about themselves. And so God wants us to take a barbarian and turn him into a civilized man or a little daughter into a civilized and great woman on whom every society depends. Kids grow up when they can take care of others. You try and value our children, build up their self-esteem and confidence. Above your work, we value you. Or is this the best you can do? Well, then it's okay with us. Kids need praise. Be aware that often they're confronted with a great pessimism in society, particularly in the area of sexual morality. Don't fight against your passions. You can't win. Give in. Here's a condom and it's free. Try to avoid corporal punishment. When you correct them, you're impounding the lessons of moral life that we must treat others with respect. You try to turn grabbers into givers. They don't come into the world saying please and thank you. They need to be conscious of other people's needs. They grow up when they finally do the right thing without being told. Stenson, that same parenting expert, says that parents have to repeat things 500 times for their children. And they only get them on the 501st. A lot of your sanctity may be tied up in that repetition 500 times. Goethe, famous German philosopher said, treat people as if they were what they ought to be and you help them to become what they're capable of being. Teenagers are young adults. Treat them like that and they really respond. Invest in their freedom and responsibility and you get a responsible adult. Great parents know that no is also a loving word. Children have to hear words of loving denial from time to time. The preparation of your children for marriage begins in their early formation in virtue, in primary school, in secondary school. It doesn't begin at the pre-marriage course. Your kids' future marriages, to a large extent, will depend on how they treat their brothers and sisters. And so we can ask the Holy Spirit for the grace to see what we need to encourage in our children. Responsibility, courageous perseverance, self-control. They might be great test takers, very skilled, but sooner or later they run into trouble if they've little character. 
Unity in the home is very important. Children grow to be confident men and women when there's unity in the home. When they live in a safe, loving environment, confident people go very far in life. And so the enemy of parents is not the future unemployment of children. The goal is not just to make them technically skilled. But the enemy of parents is not boredom. We're not just here to keep them busy and active. The goal rather is to raise children to become competent, responsible, generous, considerate men and women. who are committed to live by principles all their lives, no matter what the cost. The goal is to raise adults, not children. And so when we look at the home in Nazareth, that place where Christ wanted to spend so much time, where he grew and became strong, full of wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. We can drive a lot of inspiration of how to take care and form and grow with the gifts that God has given to us. And so we can ask Our Lady, Mother of the family and of the domestic church, to help us to grow in this area. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. There was a meeting of priests in Singapore one time and we were talking about vocation. And one religious missionary priest from Belgium stood up and said he learned the meaning of vocation from a young married couple in the United States where he was on his first assignment. They were 25 years of age. They were expecting their first baby. And the baby turned out to be a Downs baby. And the obstetrician said to the mother, whose name was Nancy, are you ready to accept this baby? I can't tell you it's going to be easy, but I can tell you that for every ounce of love that you put into this baby, you're going to get a pound of love in return. And Nancy said, yes, we're ready to accept whatever comes. And this elderly priest, who was 28 years of age at the time, said, I was very struck by that. Because nobody gets married and says, I want to have a handicapped child. And he said, I realized that is the meaning of vocation. To be ready to accept whatever comes. This meditation is about zeal for holiness in marriage. 
And he said, I began to ask myself, well, am I ready to accept whatever comes? Here I am, a 28-year-old priest, my first missionary assignment setting out in life. And a couple of years later, I was asked to go and work in Rome, work behind a desk and handle all of the financial, legal, architectural aspects of our organization all over the world. And one day, somebody came to me and said, what are you doing here working behind a desk in Rome? You're supposed to be a missionary priest. Why are you not off in Brazil or Alaska someplace? He said, I got my answer from Nancy. I didn't ask for this job. I don't particularly like it. I'd much prefer to be somewhere else. But I try to accept whatever comes. If somebody came to our organization and said, I'm willing to join your missionary organization as long as I can work behind the desk in Rome and do all the jobs that I want and I like, they would be told, well, I'm sorry, you don't have a vocation to our organization. Part of the deal is that you have to be ready to accept whatever comes. As we look to the topic of zeal for holiness in marriage, we could ask ourselves, well, why did I get married? What is the purpose of marriage? What's it all about? What is the marriage contract? Our baptismal vocation tells us that the goal of our Christian vocation is holiness and apostolate. If we're married, it's because we have a vocation to be married. That's the pathway to holiness that God wants for us. John Paul II likes to say that we're all called the eternal wedding feast. Marriage now is a preparation for marriage later. God wants to marry us. People who live celibate lives, they skip the historical reality here on earth. In order to give witness to the fact that the, the real marriage comes later. And so everything in our marriage is a preparation for marriage in the next. This is saying in different but similar words what St. Jose Maria spent his whole life saying that marriage is a pathway to holiness. And holiness ultimately is love, charity. That's what we're called to. That's the definition of holiness. And so every moment of every day, every opportunity is a calling to holiness. And in our prayer this evening, well, we could ask our Lord that we might have zeal for that holiness. We might want the goal of our marriage, ultimately to get to heaven and to bring the people around us to heaven. Our Lord says, or St. Paul says rather in the Ephesians, you did not choose me. No, I chose you. And I commissioned you to go out and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. 
Every aspect of our life has been chosen. Your wife, your home, your health, your work, your financial difficulties, your children. It's all part of a, a great divine plan in which God wants us to participate. John Paul II liked to say that the Blessed Trinity is a communion of persons. He liked to say that the family is a communion of persons. So he lifted up the family onto this Trinitarian level. Our goal is somehow to imitate the Trinity. He said marriage is a communion, a life-giving communion of persons. The Blessed Trinity is a life-giving communion of persons. The love of the Father for the Son gives rise to the Holy Spirit. And so the Catechism of the Catholic Church says the children are the supreme gift of marriage. It's an enormously positive statement. And because God chose us, well, he gives us the grace for that choosing. Like the apostles, we have not been chosen because of what we are, but because of what we have to become. Peter was not chosen because of what he was, but because of what he had to become in spite of his miseries and his failures. He did the same thing as Judas, he betrayed our Lord. Woman, I do not know him. And then we're told in scripture that the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. It's a very poignant moment. He seeks him out with his loving glance in his lowest moment. And Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. It's from this moment that he goes forward to become a great saint and a great apostle. And that's God's will for each one of us, to be a great saint and a great apostle in our marriage with everything that comes with it, ready to accept whatever comes. We can thank God very much for this vocation that he's given to us, the purpose of our existence. We can try and find meaning in that calling our growth in holiness, which is a growth in virtue. Pope Paul VI said on one occasion that the cultivation of Christian perfection must still be regarded as the richest source of the church's spiritual strength. Other interesting words, the richest source of the church's spiritual strength, the domestic church. We are called to live like great human persons, a man of virtue, that sees every day as an opportunity to grow in charity, in patience, in kindness, in order, in industriousness, in punctuality, in forgetfulness of self. It's in all these virtues and the cultivation of them that we find the purpose and the meaning of our life. Now that may entail many occasions of beginning again. I was a lawyer in Sydney once who used to come to retreats every year and attend circles and recollections. And 
One time an elderly couple came to see him. He was 86 and she was 83. And he said to them, what can I do for you? They said, we want to get a divorce. And why do you want to get a divorce? Because we don't love each other anymore. And how long have you been married? 40 years. So the lawyer quickly tried to remember all the points about the talk or the meditation on charity from his last retreat. He tried to give them an impromptu talk on the meaning of charity. Charity is patient. Charity is kind. It's letting the water flow under the bridge. It's knowing how to forgive. It's not making a mountain out of molehills. It's moving on. It's loving other people with their defects. So we went through as many points that he could remember about the virtue of charity and asked him to go away and think about it for a while. They weren't very convinced, but the husband said, okay, we'll give it a go. So they went away. And three years later, the wife came back and said, I came back because I want to thank you. My husband just passed away, but we've just had three of the most wonderful years of our whole life. And so the moral of the story is that we're always beginning again in love. Love is a mystery. God is love. And so as the preface of the Sacred Heart said to us last Friday, we go to the Sacred Heart of Christ to draw water in joy from the wells of salvation. In the wounded heart of Christ, we learn the meaning of love, forgetfulness of self, sacrifice, a willingness to be on the cross, to start over. And the devil can present sanctity to us as something unattainable. Sanctity is continuously doing what God wants, not what we want. There was a story of a, a Mexican man who for 25 years, every Saturday afternoon, used to bring his wife to the bullfights. And one Saturday afternoon, the wife said, let's not go to the bullfights. I'm fed up going to the bullfights. And the husband after thinking about it, said, okay, let's not go to the bullfights. I never really wanted to go to the bullfights anyway. There was a man who learned how to keep his first love in first place. Because we all know how the other loves of our life, Manchester United, golf, tennis, the local bar, all these things can move themselves up, maneuver themselves up sometimes into first place. And so part of holiness is keeping our first love in first place, knowing the importance of that. It's said that the greatest thing that a man can do for his family is to love his wife very much. The greatest thing a woman can do for her family is to love her husband very much. And that means we have to take care of love. Because if we're not careful, the devil can rob us of it. And love is expressed in details. St. Jose Maria liked to say that 
Married couples, after many years of marriage, have to keep their love young and fresh, like it was before they got married. So we have to know how to sweep our spouse off their feet from time to time, with little details, with surprises, with small things. People need affection. They need to be told that they're loved, that they're beautiful, that they're appreciated. St. Thomas Aquinas was asked, in the quest for holiness, what's the most important thing? And he answered, to desire it, to want it, with all our heart and soul. And so we could ask our Lord in, the, in our prayer this evening, well, do I really want that goal of my marriage vocation? more than anything else in the world, do I take care of it? Where am I now in that zeal for holiness? Am I looking after things? Am I taking care of things? What's the theme of your marriage vocation at the moment? If you were to sing a song, what would that song be? There was a song in the 60s that said, Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Or in the 90s, Once upon a time I was falling in love. And now I'm only falling apart. There's been a total eclipse of the heart. Once upon a time there was light in my life. Wherever we may be, where well, we have to try and go back and begin again. Relying sometimes a little more on the grace that God gives us. There are two prayers to the Holy Spirit that you'll find in the Christian devotions. One is the sequence of Pentecost Sunday. Spene Sancti Spiritus and Veni Creator Spiritus. The Holy Spirit is the great sanctifier. It gives us fire. The fire of love. And so it makes a lot of sense to Invoke the Holy Spirit frequently or to pray those prayers, perhaps in your Thanksgiving after Mass, or in other moments of the day. Just as we polish up our shoes every day or two, we need to do the same with our vocation to holiness. To understand what is necessary to make our vocation grow, sacraments, formation. We need regular input yearly retreat, monthly recollection, maybe a weekly confession. These are the systems that the saints have placed in position to help us to attain that goal of holiness. At the same time, we have to be careful, well, not to go to the wrong environment that can send us in the wrong direction, discos, bars, etc., etc. The holier we become, the more transparent the face of Christ becomes in us. Holiness doesn't mean that we don't have miseries and mistakes. A lady, a lady told me once how she was at Mass in another country and there was a, a French missionary priest who was preaching the homily and he talked about how when he was a kid in a small town in France, it was a monastery of stricter observance on the outskirts of the town. 
And he would go there as a 10-year-old kid to help the monks in their work. And they had a vocation of silence. So they didn't talk unless you talked to them and out of charity they would answer. So sometimes he would help the monks in their work and they would have a bit of a chit-chat. But he noticed over in the corner of the field or the garden, there was a very holy elderly monk who was working away very silently on his own. This man had a great aura of holiness about him. And one day he went over to this elderly monk and said to him, when I grow up, I want to be like you. And this holy, saintly elderly man said, no, don't be like me. Because I have had hatred in my heart. And this elderly missionary priest said, as a ten-year-old, I was shocked to hear that this saintly elderly man could have had hatred in his heart. And then he explained this because he said, yes, you see, there's a, a monk who sits beside me in the refectory. And he makes a lot of noise when he's eating. And for the last 30 years, he's been dragging me up the wall. And the lady who told me the story said, you know, when I heard the priest say that, I couldn't look at my husband. Because for the last 30 years, I've been telling him, mind your manners. And so we all have our miseries, things where we can improve on. Sometimes we have to listen to what other people are saying to us because maybe they see us as we really are, the realities. And to try and engrave in our heart that we're called to holiness. God wants me in particular to be a saint. He has created me, he's elevated me to the order of grace, he has redeemed me, given me many graces, giving me all the formation that I have because he loves me a lot. And on whether our life grows with depth in this way, to a large extent also depends on us. God doesn't go against our freedom. He created us out of love. He wants us to correspond with love. Everyone wants to change the world. But few want to do it by changing themselves. The message of personal sanctification is not so much that we convert China, but that we convert ourselves. We can't convert China if we don't change ourselves. We want big things, but we can forget about ourselves. And very often, conversion comes about in and through the cross. Try to learn how to thank God for the crosses that he sends you. Our holiness is there. A zeal for holiness can often be zeal for the cross, for the will of God in my life, accepting that will. The cross may come to us in all sorts of small ways on a daily basis, but from time to time in the course of our life there may be larger crosses, greater things. Possibly crosses that we never expected. And that's where the wisdom of the words of that missionary priest may find their true value. To be willing to accept whatever comes. 
If something comes along that you never expected, never thought would happen to you, great contradiction. And possibly it's not going to change. This is your lot for the rest of your life. And you can be sure that is the will of God for you. That's the pathway of your sanctification. And that's why we have to learn to love it. A lady told me once who had lost a 20-year-old daughter that she had learned how to thank God for the crosses that he sends her. Because she said, I realized it could be worse. And so ask our Lord for a passion for sanctity. Try to renew that eagerness for sanctity with a human and supernatural enthusiasm. Lord, may I never lose my eagerness for holiness. May my whole life, like the whole of creation, give you glory. Our vocation to holiness is a constant in our life. It's not a state of mind. It's not a feeling. It doesn't depend on our state of employment, on our finances, on our health. It has to do with our being. No matter where I am or what situation I'm in, it's here. God wants me to be holy in and through this situation. You saw it quite clearly, said St. Rosemary in the Forge. While so many people do not know God, he has looked to you. He wants you to form a part of the foundations, a firm stone upon which the life of the church can rest. Meditate upon this reality and you will draw many practical consequences for your ordinary behaviour. The foundations made of blocks of stone, hidden and possibly rather dull, have to be solid, not fragile. They have to serve as a support for the building. If not, they're useless. On your zeal for holiness may depend the zeal for holiness of each one of your children in their married life. Every hour is an opportunity to give them example, to lead by example. And so our vocation to holiness is a gift, can't be earned. You have to be chosen with a divine calling. I was giving a retreat many years ago and there was an elderly teacher who I knew had a lot of health problems in his life. So I asked him, well, how are things now? And he said to me, well, Father, I've come to realize that happiness does not consist in doing things that are easy. I nearly fell off the chair. Such wisdom. We learn an awful lot from other people. Sometimes we look for happiness in the easy things. But very often our happiness is in the problems, in the challenges, in the changes of plans, in the difficulties, in solving those things that crop up on a daily basis. We find our happiness in the cross. I think Rosemary I like to say that joy and happiness in this world have their roots in the form of a cross. 
And God is the one who makes us holy. Committed, said St. Josemaria in the forge. How I love that word. We children of God freely put ourselves under an obligation to live a life of dedication to God, striving that he may have complete and absolute sovereignty over our lives. And so there are certain areas that we always need to look out for in our marriage. One of them is communication. Communication sometimes can be a very difficult thing. To communicate charity, affection, love. To listen carefully to what other people are saying to us. Especially our spouse. There may be things that are difficult to say with words. To communicate we need to be able to read other people's bodily language. Body language. Or to know the words and gestures that only those who love know are important. When to be silent. When to listen. To be there at special times. A man asked his wife one time, why do you let our son talk to you like that? And the wife said, because that's the way that you talk to me. There may be great things we have to learn, great truths, personal truths, from knowing how to listen, good communication. If the devil can place a barrier between us and our spouse through, through communication, he's won a great battle. A couple told me many years ago how every month they take a time out, half an hour, an hour, then they sit down, and they write down all the things that have annoyed them in the previous few weeks. All the thoughts that have passed through their mind, the feelings. Feelings of injustice, feelings of neglect, feelings of lack of kindness or attention to detail. They write all those things down and then they swap papers. And so they communicate in writing the things that they might otherwise have found difficult to communicate in words. You need to work at communication in your marriage. When the devil can't attack frontally, he attacks obliquely through misunderstandings, miscommunications, neglect of details. You have to learn how to be a good communicator. And in particular, to communicate charity. Charity is patient. Charity is kind. You have to try and work at being easy to live with. We can all be difficult to live with. Sometimes we can think we are the most lovable creature on this planet. If ever you have a thought like that, well, ask your mother or your father, Mom, was I ever unlovable? And they'll say, sit down for an hour, we'll tell you about it. We have all been the most unlovable creatures that you could possibly imagine. But God has called us to try and work at being lovable creatures. For that we have to try and show love to other people. The mother is the queen of the home. We always have to try and treat our spouse as that queen. So that other people see that. 
He sees in our words, I see it in our actions. Family values means family priorities. Family comes first. Our marriage comes first. There may be times when we have to be home, special dates, birthdays, anniversaries, Sundays, Christmas. The best moments of our life should be at home and with our family. This is the apostles of the family. This is where we find our holiness. A spirit of service is a very important thing in the home. No jobs should be beneath the husband to do the washing up, to lay the table, to sweep the driveway, to wash the car, to wash our clothes sometimes. In this way we prepare our children to be good husbands and good wives. Prepare them for their marriage by giving them that example. And we can ask St. Joseph, spouse of Our Lady, that we might imitate his example in a daily way. Through our silence, through our service, through our faithfulness, through our acceptance of the will of God like he did, being in the background, forgetting ourselves, being a pillar, trusting the humble faith, being manly, being available, being full of fortitude. And we can ask Our Lady that she might cultivate that desire for a greater holiness in our marriage so that we can truly prepare for that eternal feast that God has wanted for us. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And she saw the stone taken away from the tomb. She ran therefore and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. It's curious that the story of the most important event in human history opens with Mary Magdalene. One might have thought that the story of the resurrection would open with Our Lady, or St. John, or St. Peter, but Mary Magdalene steals the show. She's the sinner, the great sinner who learned how to love. And, she was, and so she's the model for the whole of humanity. She's the one who gets up early in the morning. She's like the patron saint of all early risers. She can't sleep. If you have something on your mind or something you're bothered about, well, often you may suffer from insomnia. 
It sounds like the apostles did not have too much trouble sleeping. But Mary couldn't sleep. Why? Because there's a hole in her heart. John Paul II says that we all suffer from a hole in the heart. <clears throat> and that heart, that hole can only be filled by God. And so Mary seeks to fill that hole. There's an emptiness in her. It's like a model for all of us. And somehow we have lost Christ, particularly through sin. And so she's searching for Jesus. She needs to be with the body of Jesus. And so nothing holds her back. She's ready to overcome all obstacles. She makes her way through the town early in the morning. Not worried about what people will think or what people will say. If they hear her going through the streets, peering out from behind the curtains, wondering where is this one off to. She's not worried about the stone that will be rolled away or that will not be rolled away, although she'll find it rolled away from the tomb. Love has made her all powerful. And so the story of Easter Sunday morning is a story of love. It also speaks to us of the gravity of sin and how we have to avoid sin. And in the context of our theme this morning, forming saints in the domestic church, where we have Mary Magdalene as a great model, but also as a, a great encouragement. Christ is here for us sinners. She seeks out his love and mercy. She's the beneficiary. And so her example can lead us to focus on our cleanliness of soul, cleansing our souls from sin. If we were to form saints in the domestic church, we could try to help our children with a great awareness of sin. And for that, a great awareness of the sacrament of confession is particularly relevant. And so regular confession for children can be a great benefit. I can tell you with personal experience of 40 years that children acquire great joy from the sacrament of confession. Because often they have very sensitive souls. They can have a great sense of sin. I told a lie. I stole 10 shillings. And sometimes from the other side of the confessional grill, you can hear oh, a great sigh of relief when they get that off their conscience. And so the sacrament of confession is a sacrament of joy. One of the ways to help your children to be full of youthful joy is to help them to keep their souls clean. One saint used to say, bring your children to God and to confession before the devil gets into them. And so early confession for children carries with it great messages. It carries with us that sin is the only real evil. Often modern culture tells us that not having certain material things or evils, our unemployment, our cancer, our diabetes, our COVID, or all sorts of other things. 
But all those things can be our means to achieve heaven. The only thing that can keep us out of heaven is sin. If your children can get that message before you die, well, then you've left them a great legacy. So that, that may stay with them all through their life. There was a Dutch missionary priest in Singapore who told me that the most impressive priestly moment of his life was when he was asked to go and visit a Dutch lady in hospital who had cancer. Her death wasn't imminent, but she'd been away from the sacraments for many decades. And he was asked to go and see her. And so he went to see her and he said, I chatted to her for a while. And then there came the moment when I had to ask her the $64,000 question, which was, would you like me to hear your confession? And she gave the $64,000 answer, which was, oh, I have nothing to confess. So he just chatted to her a little more and tried to persuade her a little bit. And finally she said, okay, if it will make you happy, I will go to confession. And so she went to confession. And when she was finished her confession, she put her head back in the pillow and she said, now it is really Easter. The priest said, I was very moved by those words. Because here was this woman who had been away from the sacraments for decades. But she remembered all the things that she had learned at the time of her first Holy Communion. She knew what Good Friday was. She knew what the death of Christ on the cross meant. She knew what divine grace was, how it washes away our sins and lifts us up onto a whole new supernatural plane. She knew how we get the great treasures of grace with the sacrament. We get the virtues, the theology, theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, piety, fortitude, fear of the Lord. Do you know how we become spiritual millionaires when we are in the state of grace? God is in our soul. The devil is no longer there. She knew what Easter Sunday was, how Christ had conquered death and punishment and the devil and sin. And so her short phrase, now it is really Easter, seemed to be a summary of the whole of Christian doctrine. And so in her dying days, she had this great Easter joy. And so every time that we go to confession and bring our children there, it's very good for them to see you going to confession occasionally. We help them to participate in that Easter joy, which may be the greatest joy that they can have in their heart and soul and mind when they face eternity. It may be the greatest legacy that you ever give them, that awareness of their soul and of its eternal destiny and being called to the eternal wedding feast. John Paul II, in his Theology of the Body, liked to talk about how the real marriage comes later. Marriage in this world, he said, is just a preparation for marriage in the next. St. Josemaria Escriva used to say something similar, that marriage is a pathway to holiness. 
And so even if something goes wrong with our marriage here in this world, it's not the end of the world. Because this is just our passport to eternity. We're all called to the eternal wedding feast. And so what a wonderful thing if we can experience that Easter joy. Now those dying moments of our life because we have stored up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And so Easter Sunday morning is a story of hope, of joy, of love. Mary Magdalene goes in search of love. She goes in search of Christ. In Christ, she finds the meaning and the purpose of her life. And we're told that she finds the body has been taken away. Major disaster. And so she goes running to find Peter and John. She reveals this new piece of news to them and they come running. She said they've taken the Lord from the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out with the other disciple and went to the tomb. And the two were running together. And the other disciple ran on before faster than Peter. And they came first to the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not enter. John was younger, faster than Peter. But out of detail of deference to Peter, the primacy of Peter, the rock, the vicar of Christ on earth, he waits for Peter to come. Peter therefore came following him and he went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief which had been about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. One little lesson you could tell your children these days is to remember this little detail of our Lord, how he pays attention to little things. And so every time that you fold the towel in the washroom, try to fold it nicely, to leave the washroom in a state that you would like to find it, because that's how Christ left the tomb. He took the time and the trouble and the energy and the love to take care of that tiny detail, which St. John records for all eternity. Like a message about the importance of little details in the domestic church. We think of others, we live for others, we forget about ourselves. Christ is passing on this nugget of formation with this particular detail. Then the other disciple went in who had come to the tomb and he saw and believed the first demonstration of faith after the resurrection. For as yet they did not understand the scripture. All through the story of the Passion and Easter, with all the great things happening, we're also told all the time of how the apostles did not understand. They did not get it. They're still too dull of wit, too slow of heart. The Holy Spirit has not yet come. They did not understand that he must rise for the dead, from the dead. The disciples, therefore, went away again to their home. But Mary was standing outside weeping. Mary didn't go home. We're almost told that the apostles went back to bed. But Mary didn't. She's the model for us to imitate. 
the great sinner who has received the great treasure and who has this sense of treasure, a sense of what she has received. Help your children to have a little glimpse of what supernatural grace in our soul means. And so as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laid. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary has no material concerns. The only focus is the body of Christ. I need to be with Christ. I need my God. And she says she's willing to go and take him away, but Christ was six feet tall. He must have weighed 75 kilos. Mary may have just have been a little slip of a girl, but she feels all powerful. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, and she did not know that it was Jesus. Our Lord doesn't reveal himself to her in a bang. He does so slowly, little by little, beautifully. How often in your home, in your marriage, our Lord is standing right beside you in the midst of your domestic church. But he does not want us to recognize him. Maybe in a pain, in a cross, in a contradiction, in a setback. But Christ is always there with us as he was with Mary. There to communicate joy and hope reassurance to us that he's our loving father all we have to do is try and be close to him jesus said to her why are you weeping whom do you seek and so he teases things from her little by little she thinking was the gardener said to him sir if you have removed him tell me where you've laid him and i will take him away our Lord appears as the gardener. Recently, I was talking to a man who told me a very interesting anecdote, how he was in a boarding school 40 years ago. And he has great memory, memories of a gardener who was there in this boarding school, who looked after a little special garden that there was. And he remembers this man kneeling down to pull out the weeds or to pluck the flowers or the vegetables or whatever. And he said, this man used to work with great devotion. He was very struck by the way this gardener worked. And this man now is a successful executive. And after he worked, the gardener would go to a little image of Our Lady that there was in a corner of the garden and kneel down there as though offering to Our Lady the work that he had just done and thanking her for the talents that she had given him to be able to do that work. It's interesting how we're struck by such things. You might have expected him to talk about all his great teachers who taught him about literature or mathematics or science or something. But with the passage of time, he learned so much from the gardener. And in his professional life, wants to emulate that gardener, to learn how to work the way that man worked. Sanctifying his work, obviously. And so Christ comes as the gardener. 
in a school, in a parish, in any place that you may be, in an organization, watch out for the gardener. He may be transmitting more formation than everybody else in the whole organization. And sometimes we have to be that gardener. And so Christ appears as the gardener. And she says, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning, she said to him, Rabboni. In other places of scripture, our Lord is the one who turns. He turns to the woman with the issue of blood. He turns away from the crowds to the individual. But here's the individual who turns to him, Rabboni. He said, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. He makes it clear that now this is his risen body, spiritual body, glorious body. And he says, go and tell my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Pope Benedict liked to say that Mary becomes the apostle of apostles. She is the one sent to the other apostles. The great role of women, the power of women. Our church promotes women all over the place. Don't ever let anyone say the opposite. She becomes the apostle of apostles. And so mother and father of family, you have a similar role as Mary Magdalene, to do the apostles of the family, within the family and from the family. And that's a great mission to our profession, to our club, to our schoolmates, to our environment. We said the theme today is forming saints in the domestic church. I heard somebody say that when the church beatified and canonized the children of Fatima, the church was making a statement the seven, eight-year-old, 12-year-old children can be saints. We're all called to be saints. And so at the end of this recollection, we can turn to Our Lady and begin to participate in her joy. Perhaps these days try and teach your children the Regina Celi, Queen of Heaven, rejoice, hallelujah. For he whom thou wast worthy to bear has risen as he promised. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary, for the Lord is truly risen. Help them to know these words, to experience the joy of Easter. And maybe try and have some specific material thing in your home to help the children to get that message. John Paul says we go to the great spiritual messages through physical signs and symbols. And sometimes those are gastronomic signs and symbols. And so we can ask Our Lady that she might help us to grow this Easter and a deeper understanding of this great mystery and that we might truly see the importance of our domestic church and how God may want to use it, our specific domestic church, in forming the saints for the future. Mary, Queen of heaven and earth, full of Easter joy, pray for us. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.
My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, and the robbers, one on his right hand and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, when dividing his garments, they cast lots. These are the hours of the crucifixion. As we were saying in the last meditation, the church is in mourning for the death of Christ. Holy Saturday is a silent day. The church is silent. The church is empty, not just because of the pandemic, but that's the way it's liturgically organized. So we live out these hours and moments in the company of Our Lady, trying to digest the lessons of Holy Week and in particular, the lessons of the cross. And to see what messages this has for the theme of this recollection, which is about forming saints in the domestic church. And one of the central messages that our Lord tells us this week is about the importance of the cross and the centrality of the cross. John Paul II liked to say that we find the meaning and the purpose of our life in Christ. And you can say even more that we find the meaning and the purpose of our life in Christ on the cross. Because that's where Christ is at his greatest. He's the eternal high priest. He offers himself to his heavenly father as a sacrifice, practicing the priestly virtues of humility, of obedience, of generosity of sacrifice, virtues which as Christian parents or families or family members were, were called to put into practice every day, to accept the little pinpricks that God may send us on a daily basis, the changes of plans, the ups and downs, the setbacks, are also the more major crosses that God may want to visit us with in the course of our life. A standard four little girl told me once that she said, Father, I hate carrots. And my mummy is always giving me carrots. So I had to say to her, well, you see, that has something to do with what our Lord said in the gospel. He said, unless you take up your carrots and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And so we all have our carrots. Something, somehow, that God sends along that we didn't particularly want or we weren't expecting. But you can be sure the hand of God is there. And he hopes, like his prayer in Gethsemane, that we will say, Father, if you are willing, let these carrots pass from me. Yet not my will. Rather, yours be done. 
It's a very powerful prayer that our Lord says in the ecstasy of his prayer in the garden. But the key word is the first word, Father. There is no contradiction between the fact that his Father God is about to visit him with the greatest amount of human suffering that anybody ever experienced. And the fact that he's a loving heavenly father. If you evil as you are. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more. Will your heavenly father. Give good things to those who ask him. Possibly the key word in that phrase is the word more. So the church teaches us that God blesses us with the cross. The cross is not a punishment. It's not damnation. It's the means to our holiness. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says the way of perfection passes by way of the cross. There is no holiness, he says, without renunciation and spiritual battle. Holiness is in the cross. It's in accepting the crosses and in thanking God for the crosses that he sends us. I was impressed one time with a lady who had many major crosses in her life. She told me, you know, Father, I, I thank God for the crosses that he sends me. Because I realize it could be much worse. That's a very healthy thing. Acts of thanksgiving can be a very useful mechanism. To help us to see the other side of the story. If you have a pain in your shoulder someday. Well, and you thank God for the pain in your shoulder. Or thank him for the other 35 joints. That seem to be working quite well this morning. Well that can change your whole day. Acts of thanksgiving. Help us to see the good things. The blessings. And to see the blessings as a. The crosses as the blessings because we realize they could be worse. And if the cross comes along in your marriage, or in your family, in your health, or in your finances, or in your work, well, that's a good thing. Because we, when you have found the cross, well, then you have found Christ. Christ is on the cross. And if something comes along in your life that you weren't expecting, you thought this might never happen to me in my marriage, in my family, something totally unexpected, and possibly something that's not going to go away. This is my lot for eternity. Well, then you can be sure that's your pathway to holiness. This is the particular pathway that God has planned for you. And it's in accepting that cross and looking for the grace and the sacraments to learn how to handle it day by day that you will find your fulfillment. And also in trying to carry the cross in your life or in your family, you will give that marvelous example that God has planned for all eternity that you would give your children to be a Christian mother or father, so that they grow up knowing what that means. They have a living example, a personification of Christ in their midst, 
who knows how to be cheerful and peaceful and joyful and optimistic and full of faith and full of hope so that the child learns how to live those virtues in concrete circumstances which they will surely find in their life failing an exam missing a shot enduring some illness having some accident or some cross that may come up along later in in their family or in their marriage or in their apostolate in reaching out to other people. I'm a great believer in the fact that when God sends us across, he sends us a great apostolic potential. You may find a few months or years down the road, God brings you in contact with somebody who's carrying a similar cross. And because you've been there, you know how to help them. You become their Simon of Cyrene. Because Christ has formed you in that way. A couple of years ago, a lady told me she had a miscarriage. And she told me that the other mothers in the class where one of her children were, were very kind, very helpful, very attentive. They really helped her very much through those three or four months of natural grieving that she had. But she said, you know, there was one mother there who lost a seven-year-old child a few years previously. And that mother used to come and sit with me. It wasn't the things she said. It was just her silent presence. She knew what to say, but also what not to say. Sometimes she just sat there with me. And she said, you know, all the other mothers were so kind and so good. But the contribution of that mother meant more than all the others. That lady had been there. She knew what was needed. She knew the word or the gesture that only those who've learned about love from the cross know is important. And so the cross is very formative. We teach our children to carry the cross times by saying no to them. There's an American educationalist called Stenson, who has a number of books around the place, who likes to say that no is also a loving word. Children he need to hear words of loving denial from time to time. When they're told they cannot have this or they cannot do that, or they cannot have a mobile phone, even when everybody else has one, or a whole series of other things. They learn in time how to accept that no, and they learn how to say no to themselves, which is a very important message because Christ has told us, unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And so, our Lord invites us to teach those words of loving denial so people can learn self-denial. And ultimately, our holiness is all tied up in conquering our self-love. The greatest problem in our spiritual life is that we love ourselves too much. That's called our pride, manifested in egoism and selfishness. Ask God for the grace and the Holy Spirit for the grace to let you see the manifestations of your selfishness, of your pride, 
so that we become more aware of our self-love, because that's what we have to conquer. Until we bring the enemy out from the shadows, we don't know who it is that we're fighting. And it's against that enemy that our greatest battles have to be waged. To say no to ourselves, to control our anger, to practice charity, to suspend our judgments, to cut our tongue, are all the other little occasions that may lead us into sin. One of the great subliminal messages of Holy Week is the gravity of sin. Sin is so great that God had to die on a cross and give every last drop of his blood because he loved us so much. Lord, help me to grow in my hatred for sin and not just for mortal sin, but also for venial sin. Sometimes little children ask the question, Father, is that a sin? Or is, sorry, they ask, is that a mortal sin? Which is sort of the wrong question, as though if it was venial, it would be okay. But all sin hurts our God. A lady told me once, Father, what have we done to our God? And so we shouldn't just be fighting in the in the realm of mortal sin or venial sin and he used to come back every week and say well I managed not to say anything this week came back the next time and said well I I, I kept silent this week and the third week he came back and said you know I I think she's beginning to notice because this week she turned around and said what's the matter are you sick and he had to say can't you see I'm about to explode so sometimes in those ordinary situations of family life there can be Great challenges to practice virtue, to be more Christ-like, to be more patient. Charity is patient. Charity is kind. And by practicing those ordinary virtues in the ordinary situations of life, well, then we teach our children around us to practice those virtues. They see what that means, what self-denial means when we live a spirit of service. And we go out of our way to help some other family or some person that's going through a rough time or that needs our help. And they see that we sacrifice our time, our energy, that we live family priorities, that we eat together each evening or whenever we can, or especially in the holidays or weekends. And that living and giving time and energy and attention to your children can take a lot of effort. There was a kid in a school once in Manila where I was for many years, and I asked him, he was about seven or eight, well, do you say your night prayers? And with great confidence, he said, yes, always. And I was a bit surprised to hear somebody say always. So I was a bit curious, how come always? And he said, oh, myself and my brother, we have our dinner and then we get ready for bed, but we don't go to bed or to sleep until my daddy arrives home. And when he parks the car, the first thing he does is he comes up the stairs and he says our night prayers with us. Well, that father was a busy executive, came home tired from work every evening. But before even having dinner, he made sure he saw his children every day, every night, even just for a few moments. And he prayed the night prayers with them. And so this kid was able to say always. And so he has that example 
for his whole life, the example of the virtue of his father, tired, weary, but living those family priorities, of transmitting that message to his children that you are the most important thing in my life. And that's a message we transmit in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of moments. And when they see our struggle, well, then children learn to have that backbone or that fortitude to go against the grain, to conquer their own selfishness and their own egoism or their own passions or their own appetites and desires. So that they practice a certain self-mastery. In the documents of the church, you may often find those words, self-mastery, self-control. It's not a word we hear too frequently in modern parlance. But very important for children to learn that sort of message, to be in control of myself, my base tendencies, so that when it comes to study, well, I can apply my mind. And even if my mind feels like it's in Hawaii, will I bring it back and bring back my imagination to focus on the piece of paper that's in front of me? And those words and that lesson that I have to try and kick into my brain. And so from our meditation on the passion and the virtues of Christ that he practices there, we learn many wonderful things. To accept the will of God in all the ways that it comes to us. At a meeting of priests in Singapore where I used to live many years ago, an elderly Belgian missionary priest stood up and said, I learned the meaning of vocation from a young married couple many years ago. He said, my first assignment as a missionary was in the United States. I got to know this young couple. They were 25 years of age. They were expecting their first baby. And the baby turned out to be a Downs baby. And the doctor said to the mother, whose name was Nancy, are you ready to accept this child? I can't tell you it's going to be easy. But I can tell you that for every ounce of love that you put into this baby, you're going to get a pound of love in return. And Nancy said, yes, we're ready to accept whatever comes. And this priest said, I was very moved by that. We're ready to accept whatever comes. And he said, I realized that's the meaning of vocation. To be ready to accept whatever comes. All sorts of things may come in your marriage, in your family, but it's always a blessing. God has other plans. On that occasion, God used that young married couple to form the life of that priest and all the other priests to whom he shared this story. And now on a different continent, I'm sharing that story with you. All because of Nancy and her husband. And that's what we said a couple of years later, I was asked to go and work in Rome and handle the architectural and the legal and the financial and the planning aspects of our organization all over the world. One day somebody came to me and said, what are you doing here working behind a desk in Rome? You're supposed to be a missionary priest. Why aren't you off in Alaska or Brazil someplace? He said, I got my answer from Nancy. I didn't ask for this job. I don't particularly like it. I'd much prefer to be somewhere else, any other time but now, any other place but here, any other job but this. 
But he said, I, I try to be ready to accept whatever comes. This is what came along. He said, if somebody came to our organization and said, well, I'm willing to join your organization if I can work behind a desk in Rome and do all the jobs that I like, they'd be told, well, I'm sorry, you don't have a vocation to our organization. The deal is that you have to be ready to accept whatever comes. And so someday, as a parent, as a father of a family, you may have to sweep a floor or wash the dishes or change a, a nappy or wash the car. And with that, you show your children what it takes to build a home. Everybody must be ready to do anything. And that way we form ourselves to do all sorts of different jobs. We make ourselves useful and effective. And sometimes that means carrying the cross, doing things we don't feel like doing, conquering our likes and dislikes, not allowing words to be part of our vocabulary, like I feel like, I don't feel like, I want, I don't want. I fulfill my duty. I heard recently that the governor of the Central Bank of Kenya organized a talk for the children of all the employees in that bank. And some of the parents were very happy to hear that the governor was going to address their children. And they all went along there thinking they were going to hear some very lofty words about the economy or about finance or investment or something. And he gave them some sort of a formative talk. The central moral or gist of was the most important thing that you can do at the moment in your life is to make your bed every morning. They were not very impressed, but their mothers were. I've been trying to tell them that for the last 10 years. Sometimes just to fulfill the ordinary duties in the home, irrespective of how we feel, inform us to be great people. Somebody to find professionalism wants us doing the best job we can do, irrespective of how we're feeling. Providing a good service. Drucker has a book called The Effective Executive, where he searches out and asks the question, what makes people effective? And he says, people are effective because they don't just do good things, they do the right things. And they do the right things because they ask themselves the right question, which is, what can I contribute? And so we said, everybody in every organization has to ask themselves, what can I contribute? In every family, at every meal, in every home, every day of the holidays, we have to try and teach people in our family to ask themselves that question. I need, may need to pass somebody the salt. I may need to uh, fill their glass with water. I may need to call my grandmother. I may need to finish off this little job in the garden. What can I contribute? Sometimes those little things that we find that we can contribute, that nobody else can contribute, makes us effective. And so mother of a family, father of a family, try and work at being more effective in the formation of the saints that God has entrusted to your care, the formation of their soul, 
Christmas and the message of Christmas in many ways is easy to transmit. There are many material things that transmit the message. Easter, to a certain extent, has some material things, perhaps not so easy as Christmas. Generally, Pentecost has nothing. We have to try and lift up Pentecost on our screen. One of the greatest feasts of the whole of the liturgical year, the Holy Spirit coming to build up the universal church and the domestic church. If you can come out with a, a Pentecostal chapati, arugali, well, maybe you could uh, enrich the family finances. John Paul II says, we go to the great spiritual messages through physical signs, material signs and symbols. Crucifixes, crosses, rosary beads, incense, ashes. Our church is full of physical signs and symbols, the way of the cross. These things get the message across to young children. Try to foster those physical signs and symbols in your home. Images of Our Lady, perhaps in each room, a crucifix somewhere, a place where the family gathers to pray. Make use of the symbols the church gives us, palm branches or other things, holy water. These transmit a message to the children learn to form their soul also as they grow through life. And these days the church gives us the very special symbol of the cross. Teach your children to make the sign of the cross well. For first communion class in that school in Manila many years ago, I used to encourage the children to make their first confession face to face to see how they made the sign of the cross. You would be amazed at all the variations that children can come up with when it comes to making the sign of the cross. And yet that cross is so central in our life. These days remind us that we're called to be very Christocentric. And each Easter that comes brings new graces for us to penetrate a little more deeply into the mystery of the cross and into those wounds of Christ. Fulton Sheen says there's an eternal freshness in the wounds of Christ. The Holy Spirit is there. There is peace. There is consolation. There is joy. My yoke is sweet. And my burden is light. The cross is sweet. And so as we accompany Our Lady on this day, in her sorrow, but also in our hope, we can say, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. Hail our life, our sweetness, and our hope. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, 
Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised to life, had died. And they made him a supper there. And Martha served, while Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. Today is Holy Saturday. It's a special day in the whole of the liturgical year. It's a day of silence. The church is in mourning for the death of Christ. There are no masses in any church anywhere in the world today, not because of the pandemic, because, but because this is the liturgical practice. The church is silent. We try to accompany Our Lady on this special day in her mourning for the death of her son. While there is sorrow and sadness, there's also hope and expectation because we look forward to the great feast of the resurrection. The light of Christ is going to come into the world to dispel all the darkness. The apostles have fled. Mary is left alone with St. John. And today, well, Mary is the shining star of the church. She keeps the flame of faith shining and burning brightly. For this reason, Saturday has been depicted as Our Lady's Day throughout the history of the church. And so it's a very Marian day with a special Marian flavour. And we're here to prepare for the great feast of Easter, but also to focus on the theme of forming saints in the domestic church. A relevant topic because on the 19th of March last week, the Holy Father convoked the year of the family to highlight family love. Human love and family love is a reflection of divine love the most beautiful reality on the planet. And Holy Week is all about love. Greater love than this no man has, than that he lay down his life for his friends. And so God is love, or Christ is love. And these very special hours that we have been witnessing and living, trying to follow Christ along that pathway, well, witnesses to love in a very special way. It speaks to us about love. In the culture that we live in, often we're told that love is feeling. But feelings can be very deceptive. Feel the feeling, taste the feeling, hear the feeling, sense the feeling. Christ on the cross did not feel too good. He had three big nails going through him. Feelings can be very deceptive, but Christ tells us that love is sacrifice. And so with great reason, the Holy Father has convoked this special year to highlight family love, fostering new ways to accompany families on their path to holiness. 
And so we're reminded that the goal of the Christian vocation, the goal of our baptism, is holiness and apostolate. Something that has a daily relevance for us throughout our life. And this year of the family also coincides with the year of St. Joseph, which began last December. And so we could, well, enlist the help of the Holy Patriarch to help us in this year with his intercession for our families, for the families of the whole world, and also that many young people might discover the beauty of undertaking the path of married life, while being aware of the Christian family's evangelizing mission. Family has a mission. We're sent. We're all missionaries. And Christian parents in their Christian family have to try and witness to the great truth of family life, to make Christ present to their children, to try and live like great human beings, so that young children grow knowing what that means, so that they see a vocation to holiness lived out on a daily basis. Notice how our Lord goes up to Jerusalem, but he finds there an atmosphere of hostility, betrayal, iniquity, hatred, envy, jealousy, all the ugly things. And so he withdraws to Bethany, to a home, to the domestic church of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And he feels very much at home there. He's felt at home there on many other occasions. He seeks strength there for what is about to come. The hours that he spends there are perhaps reminiscent of his own home in Nazareth with Joseph and Mary. He spent 30 long years in family life, only three years in public life. Christ communicates a great sense of importance to family life, to that formative atmosphere, to the bright and cheerful home that Joseph and Mary knew how to create with their virtue, with their holiness. And all the great things that we see Christ doing in Holy Week, carrying his cross, falling down, getting up again, persevering, not coming down off the cross. It's as though he learned all these things in the school of virtue that was the family home in Nazareth. And so we could never underestimate the power of the Christian home, its formative value to form great men and women to build the civilization of love and the culture of life that the last few popes, particularly Pope John Paul, has been talking about. And so we can ask for the grace to have another look at our own marriage and our own family, to see how we can perhaps begin again, our enrich, our family, our domestic church, to make it a little bit more formative 
I know a priest here in Nairobi who used to work in Rome and he knew many people there. And he invited an American cardinal to come here to Nairobi some years ago for a conference. And at that time, I was involved in what is now Eastlands College of Technology. It's a technical school just on the right-hand side at the end of Jogo Road near the Donholm Roundabout. But at that time, it was just a small little house in Uhuru 4 near Jericho with a Mabati roof. It was a place where kids could come to study because they might not have had room in their own homes. And there was a lot of formative activities there. And this priest brought this American cardinal there to see this place and to have a bit of a get together with some of the kids who go there. So there were 10 or 20 kids in the get together, very frank and very fresh with their questions. I suspect they never met a cardinal before or didn't know too much of what it meant. And one of them asked him with a very frank question, well, now that you're a cardinal, can you be demoted? So they didn't hold back. They weren't put off by human respects and the questions they were asking. And then one of them asked him, what made you become a priest? And the cardinal told a rather beautiful story. He said, when I was five years of age, my father was dying of cancer. I was the youngest of five children. And the priest would come once a week to bring communion to my father. And my mother organized us five children to be at the hall door with lighted candles. And we had a Eucharistic procession from the hall door to the bedroom of my father on the second floor. And once a month, we would wait outside while my father went to confession. And then we continued with our procession. And so the Cardinal said, I thought what a beautiful thing to be a priest to bring the Blessed Eucharist to sick people, to comfort them in their souls in moments of difficulty. It was a rather beautiful story, but that's not really the major point of the story. I often like to think about that mother, his mother, who doesn't figure too much in the story, but yet she's the one that makes it all happen. She's a young mother with young children, with a husband dying of cancer. But yet she has great faith in the Blessed Sacrament. And she organizes this Eucharistic procession in her domestic church. Now think about that for a moment. In the school where I live, there is a priest who has been the chaplain here for 22 years. And he says, one of the things I have learned in 22 years is that children love fire. This mother gives a lighted candle to a five-year-old. He could have burned down the house, but that was a, a minor problem. This mother didn't know that she was forming a future Cardinal Prince of the Church, who one day would come to Eastlands College of Technology, no less, and share this story with little kids, which I'm now sharing with you. That took place in another continent on the other side of the world. And five or six decades later, here we are talking about the example of that mother in that particular occasion. How she used that opportunity to form her children in Eucharistic piety. And she could have had no idea of where that example, and that seed of virtue 
was going to end up. Enlightening our hearts and minds today and helping us to see the great formative value of a Christian home, of a mother, of a father, of the power that is there. We don't have to worry about all the evils in the world or the ways that we find the devil is having a heyday. Holy Week was, well, a great victory for the devil in some ways until the victory of Christ. He overcame death. He overcame the devil. He overcame evil. And so with Christ in our lives and in our homes, we can overcome every single evil there may be in the world. In the transmission of family values. Family values which are family priorities. Our family comes first. The best times in our life should be at home and with our family. I heard somebody say once that a dead father is better than an absent father. Because at least if the father is dead, at least the children know where he is. And so the importance of presence in the home to form those future saints so that they grow up seeing what real virtue is, what real holiness is. I was talking to a Loretto nun here in Musangari a few months ago. She died in January, age 99, having spent something like 73 years here in Kenya. And I asked her about her vocation and how did her parents react to her vocation? She had two other sisters who were in, in religious life. And she said, well, my father asked me to wait a year, but my mother had no problem because she was a saint. Those words stuck with me. What a beautiful thing if our children can see at the end of our life that their parents were saints. As her coffin was being lowered into the very deep grave in St. Mary's in Mosangari, I couldn't help but think of the grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies, but yet yields an abundant fruit. If we spend our lives transmitting values to our children, they will transmit values to other people. This is the great treasure, the great strength that we have. A strength that can overcome every single possible evil there may be in the world. And so from looking at this topic and looking at Bethany, where Christ felt at home, where he drew strength, where he found peace and joy, where his heart was able to relax, that heart that was going to be pierced by a sword just a little bit later. Blood and water were going to flow, the fountain of the sacramental life of the church. But he finds this human strength and human friendship in that human warmth of that home. There's consolation there. There's a good time there. There's grace there. We all need those things. Christ was perfect God, but he was also perfect man. 
like us in all things but sin. And so he also enjoyed that rest for his soul that he found in that home. We will form saints in our children. If they, we create that atmosphere in the ordinary life that God has called us to live. Christ communicated that great sense of importance to ordinary life. And so we can be reminded that there is something divine there. God is present there in your home, in your efforts to form your children, in the example that you give them, in your effort to be a bit more Christ-like and to use every opportunity to form your children in virtue. I heard a story recently of a mother who was driving her standard two child home from school and she got stuck in a traffic jam Matatu's here, Matatu's there, and she was getting very impatient, banging the steering wheel. And her eight-year-old standard two pipes up and says, well, mommy, today in school, we had a talk about patience. And the teacher told us that we have to learn to be patient. And if we're in standard two, well, we can't expect to be in standard eight. We have to take one step at a time. We have to live our age. We have to do this thing now. Sometimes we have to walk instead of running. We have to plan out our activities. And he went on for five minutes, blah, 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 giving his mother a talk about all the things he had learned about patience that day. And the mother listened patiently. And then she said, I felt like turning the car around, going back to the school and paying more fees. In spite of her feeling boiling on the inside, there was a great joy of seeing that her son had learned such wonderful lessons. And so there can be great moments just driving in the car or at the breakfast table or other very practical moments to transmit messages to our children. My mother used to pray the morning offering with us when she remembered at the breakfast table. We never reminded her if she forgot, but if she remembered, she prayed it. But if she had never done that, I think I would never have heard the morning offering. When I was in standard two, there was a teacher who prayed the memorare every single morning for a whole year. I came from a Catholic family, but for some reason we never prayed the memorare. And I never heard that prayer for 10 years until I came in contact with Opus Dei when I was 17. And I said, oh, that's the prayer that teacher used to pray in standard two. But I feel very grateful to him now because if he hadn't prayed that prayer, I would never have heard it. So use ordinary moments to pray those basic prayers with your children. The father has told me recently how his two-year-old is beginning to talk. And so he's trying to teach him or sing to him the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. And the kid can't quite enunciate the words, but you just about get some sounds out that you can more or less decipher that it's the prayer to St. Michael that he's saying. Another beautiful thing, this is a very early age. We teach our children these things. We teach them to turn to God. Where their real hope and joy can be. I often think that the prayers that a child learns around the time of their first communion are the prayers they will say on their deathbed. The things we remember, 
often the greatest period of spiritual formation is in those early years. So give a lot of importance to that. Think of ways with your spouse. How can we make our family life more formative? How could we think, possibly in these times of holidays, to do something for the very young or the very elderly? If your kids haven't phoned their grandmother recently, well, maybe that's a nice thing for them to do. I brought a university student to Moranga a few years ago who hadn't seen his grandmother in two or three years. He'd been at boarding school, many things. And the grandmother was out of the gate of the house, looking down the road to see if he was coming three times before we arrived. And this 85-year-old, when we arrived, she did a dance around her grandson. The joy of that 80-plus-year-old lady was a, a magnificent to behold. And so sometimes some small things like a phone call to Shushu can go an awful long way. And likewise, the effort that you bring your family to visit maybe an orphanage or handicapped children helps them to realize the gifts that God has given to them. Maybe not now, but over time. It may take many decades before the penny drops. Then they realize the lesson you were trying to teach them, to thank God for everything. So they learn how to lift up their heart and soul in thanksgiving to God at every moment of their life. They learn also to live like saints and to build that domestic church. I heard a chastity educator in California one time saying how difficult it was to teach California kids to be chaste. I suppose you could say the same thing about young people all over the world. She said it was a rather hard sell job but she said, you know, my parents never had to talk too much to us about these things. Because every time they brought home a baby, that baby became the center of our life, of our whole family. It was the most important person in the whole house. And she said they did this 11 times. So we had many opportunities to learn those lessons. One of the greatest ways you can teach your children to be saints is in your openness to life bring new souls into the world. Souls which will give God glory in this world and that will then go to heaven and to give him glory forever and forever and forever. I heard a Protestant theologian once who was musing on this reality and he was thinking, well, if that's the purpose of the soul in the world. Well, the greatest thing in life must be to bring souls into the world, to give God glory forever and forever. And on that basis, he came to the conclusion that contraception must be wrong, and so he became a Catholic. Rather unusual pathway of conversion. But it shows you the power of that truth. And to be open to life at every stage of your marriage requires great faith and great generosity. You become a saint. And you don't just talk about it. You put it into practice. The happiest women I have known in my life are women who've had babies in their 40s, who've left everything in the hands of God. And of course, he rewards them, not just in the next life, but also in this. One of them told me that 10 years later, their 
peers were looking after their grandchildren and they were still going to the swings with their own children. Kept them young. Some of the saints say that maternity makes women more beautiful. And it's one of the greatest witnesses that's needed from Christian homes in the world at the moment. For families who are not able to have children, well, that also opens up a, a wide panorama of family apostolate to also form saints, maybe with other people's children. To give an example of sanctity in the middle of the world. And to see that they're called with their mutual love to provide the example of a bright and cheerful home for those around them. To share that home, maybe with friends or relatives or acquaintances. And so we help to transform our world into a better home. We don't know what God is wanting to do with the family formation that we give. I visited a 95-year-old Irish priest in a hospice in Tegio, Lumuru, in the last few weeks, who said his mother died when he was four. There were eight children. They were farmed out to different relatives. Their father was a vet. He had to travel around the place. Well, three of those sons became priests, and one of them, one of the daughters, went into religious life as a nun. He came here as a Celtigan missionary. He was the first priest to go to Pocot in 1952. But he said the Pocot people, they had no education, they had no medication, and they had no revelation. They spent the next 49 and a half years solving that problem. Just imagine the family that fellow was entrusted into somehow formed him in those virtues, which were to have such an impact on the people of Pocot. He told me he tried to learn Pocot, and after two months he thought he was going mad. We got on his motorbike and he drove 250 kilometers on the Moram Road to Nakuru to talk with Bishop Dunn, who later went to Ketui. And the bishop asked him how long he'd been learning Pocot. He said, two months, and I think I'm going mad. The bishop said, ah, don't worry. You're only early days yet. Get back on your bike and go back to where you came from and keep at it. Well, that's what he did. And a couple of years later, he translated the New Testament into Pocot. And so forming our children to be saints to give an example of virtue to those who come after us. John Paul talks about the family being the school of deeper humanity. I love those words. He had a couple of very short little phrases that are so rich, the culture of life, the civilization of love. The family is the school of love, the school of virtue. And so very interesting if parents have little meetings from time to time to see how we can improve our school of virtue. And now in the holidays, well, a great time to put new things into practice, virtues into practice, teaching order, industriousness, generosity, to spend time helping other people, perhaps people less generous than themselves, or to find a way to, to earn some money or something. The Holy Father has called the next world meeting of families on June 26, 2022, with the theme, Family Love, a Vocation and a Path to Holiness. Very relevant for this particular topic. This is in the mind of the Vicar of Christ on Earth, these hours, the family, family love, vocation, calling, 
to live like great human persons, to reach for the stars, to seek the things that are above. And so we can ask St. Joseph to help us to really derive an awful lot of fruit from this year dedicated to the family. In his letter on St. Joseph, the Holy Father says, we can ask the Holy Patriarch to grant us the grace of graces, our conversion. Our conversion on this Holy Saturday to tell our Lord, well, Lord, no more messing in my life. I want to take this calling to form saints in my children more seriously, to see it as a daily challenge, to have a concrete battle plan so that we may be better witnesses to God, particularly to God's love in our own environment, especially in the family, so that we transmit to other people what that means. I was at the celebration in Musangari a year or two ago of a Loretta Nunn, who was commemorating her profession, I think 60 years, and she gave a talk at the end of the, after the mass and the lunch, and one of the things she said that struck me, she said, you know, this thing we say very often, God is good all the time. She said, I don't like that. I don't like it. God is good all the time. She said, God is love. And so she took this little phrase and lifted it up onto a completely different level. To seek the strength we need to bring about that conversion and the conversion of the souls entrusted to us in the form of your children. We just need to think in a regular way of that simple phrase, God is love. And when we contemplate the cross and Christ taken down from the cross, well, we're contemplating love. And so on this day, as we try to accompany the sorrowful mother in a special way, keeping her company with little aspirations or the Hail Holy Queen or throughout this recollection, being a little more silent, a little more recollected, thinking of Our Lady. You can place great hope in the future, like Our Lady did today. The hope of the resurrection, the joy that is coming, the optimism. We have all the answers. And with Mary, we can always be victorious because she is always with Christ. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.